0: Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations Podcast. Today, I have got part two of my great conversation with Keridan Dovey. If you haven't checked out part one, I thoroughly recommend it. It gives you a little bit more context about the book and is a really nice introduction to some of the topics that we'll be discussing today. Keridan Dovey is a writer of fiction, creative nonfiction, essays and profiles, and the latest book of hers that we're going to be talking about, it's called Life After Truth. Now, I am Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Oro Nation. I am recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people, and I want to start by acknowledging those traditional owners, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to those lands. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, this podcast, it's all about books, writing, and literary culture, and I say this every week, and I mean it. If you want to share amazing Australian writing with people, you can tell them about the podcast, give it a rating, leave a comment. It puts us in front of more eyes in the book-loving podcast listening world. Now, today on the show, as I said, it is part two of Keridan and I discussing life after truth. On the eve of their 15th reunion, five friends return to Harvard University. It's the scene of their fondest memories, but now, as they're spread around the the world, their reunion propels them back towards younger conceptions of themselves. Unfortunately, though, no reunion is limited just to your friends, and the group have to confront old flames, bullies, and the ubiquitous jerk, now the son of the American president. Sounding familiar? Fred Reese is one of the most despised men in the country, but when he winds up dead, did anyone hate him enough to kill him? In part two of this conversation, Keridan and I are going to be exploring themes of power and parenthood in the book. It is an absolutely terrific read, it is an absolutely uh, terrific conversation. Join me as we discuss and Dovey's Life After Truth. <laughs> And I'm really excited to be joined on the line by Keridan Dovey. Today, she is joining me to discuss her new novel, Life After Truth. Keridan, so many ideas that I want to explore, but I want to focus in on the idea of parenthood because that becomes such a focal point of of the introspection. Those of the characters with kids, they, they sort of fiercely hold their decision uh, in defence against those without. There's a particularly sort of charged scene around that um at one point rowan ponders that socializing a miniature wild human so they eventually become a useful member of society was the hardest work on earth it was designed to be done in community not by one person alone or even two people and he's doing that in in sort of in conversation with the book that eloise has written you show us various types of parents and parenting um In Life After Truth, I wondered what you thought about this plurality of parenting types and and how they sit in the world.
1: Those are my favourite parts to write. Um, It's just after sort of nine years of hardcore, you know, full contact parenting myself, I I had a lot of material that I'd never used before um, because I'd never really written a a contemporary novel of manners, you know, where I could really uh, just... Go into some of that um, and turn my eye on some of the you know modern um, follies of of, of parenting. Mm. Um, but the book that really helped me uh, actually uh, push that a bit deeper, and I acknowledge it at the end of the novel, is um, a nonfiction book called All Joy and No Sons that uh, an American woman called Jennifer Senior wrote. And it just blew my mind when I read this book about four years ago because it was a Ethnography of modern parenting, and instead of doing the judging of, you know, uh, there's so much judging between parents who are in the trenches, and you know, everybody's kind of struggling, doing their best, totally overwhelmed, um, sort of knows that it shouldn't, it doesn't feel quite right to be doing it in the way that we, you know, do it in, you know, in a rich, first world country. Um, but can't put their finger on exactly why and in this book she you know took it back and put it into context sort of anthropological context and traced all sorts of other developments and particularly the return of women to the workforce and then the way that that meant that suddenly you couldn't do the kind of casual share care that women used to do when, you know, traditionally they were mostly at home and the men were off at work because you you knew there were eyes on the streets, you know, at home during a the weekday. There were other women at home and the kids could sort of roam free and then women go back into the workforce, which is obviously a positive thing. But the outcome of that in in a way is that we've gone back to this insane, you know, nuclear unit is where it begins and ends and um, parents who are more present than ever before physically you know because kids aren't given that space to roam or anything but they're not present mentally because the technologies that we've developed have meant we're completely distracted all the time and so that's the bizarre experience I think that many modern kids are having of having a physically present parent who's mentally absent most of the time like what what that generation is going to end up being is is going to be interesting um but by putting it into context like that and, and looking at the ways in which um, the various emotions and textures of parenting and, you know, the ideas around the fearful joy that you feel when you watch your kids sleep, you know, you feel this love and then it's, you're immediately overwhelmed, with terror of lust. Um And again, you know, it's such a modern phenomenon to love your kids to distraction. It's a it's a luxury. It's the ultimate luxury, actually. Um to have a small family size and then to pour everything you have into those kids. So I wanted to try and capture some of that contextual stuff around why does modern parenting feel the way that it does, you know, in certain um, uh, societies around the world and it's obviously of a certain class level. But what have we done to ourselves? You know, uh, why are we doing it this way? Um, and that sense also, I think at one point, Mariam thinks about the fact that, you know, in the past, People knew what they were preparing their kids for. They were preparing them for to take their place in a traditional society where the roles were predetermined and very clear. Um and so as a parent you knew, okay, that's my job is to raise this kid to take their place on these you know, in this society and to fulfill these traditions that are time on it. And now nobody knows what to prepare a kid for. And mm-hmm. so that whole notion of stuffing your kid full of skills which again, it's very easy to make fun of parents for doing that and to say that it's, you know, obsessive parenting, you know, so kids doing a gazillion extracurriculars and, you know, judo and oboe and Mandarin classes and coding and all of that. Um, but I really try to take it to the next level and not just have that be something that's uh, ever uh, satirized in the novel, but to try and understand that, you know, we're doing that because nobody knows, what future are you trying to prepare your kid for so you are trying to actually just stuff them full of skills for an unknown future and that's a radically different way to parents than probably any parent has in in the past so I think as an anthropologist originally I studied social anthropology um, in my uh, earlier years and I think it's that way where you both a participant and an observer, you know, that's what field work is, you're basically lurking at the fringes of groups that you sort of belong to but you're sort of outside of and I feel a bit of like I've been doing field work on modern parenting for nine years and so I wanted to capture some of those things but I hope from a place of compassion, um, not cruelty, so that's why, you know, it's not it's not a satire, like satire comes from a, a slightly cruel place but um, I wanted to show the inconsistencies within these individual people, like the way that Mariam, you know, has a rule for herself that she uh, will never judge another woman's practices of mothering out loud. Mm. But internally, in her internal monologue, it's just a shit show of, you know, no holds barred judgment. (laughs) So, you know, those sorts of things. But um, ultimately, I hope it's... uh, Maybe even a little bit useful for people who are reading it and might be going through that same life stage to just be a bit more compassionate about this to, to themselves and to understand at a at a slightly deeper level, you know, why it is that we are we are parenting this way. It's not entirely actually in our control. There's much bigger forces historically, economically, sociologically that have that have led us to this point.
0: I was really interested in the way you you stretch those ideas of parenting too, and also um that that power relationship between parent and child. And there's a scene that I actually just really loved. And I, I loved it for the way it flips a trope of of parent-child sort of storytelling. And that is that is that sort of idea of the precocious child speaking speaking wisdom that the adults can't see. And in Life After Truth there is uh, a story a, a plotline where Eloise and her um, her wife Binks Binks is a post humanist study uh, theorist and um, scientist and has created Ellie um, plus who which is a, a an artificial intelligence form of Eloise and there is a point where Eloise is in almost in desperation uh, talking to LE+, and it is only through that reflective conversation that Eloise can get the wisdom that she can't access herself. And I thought, I mean, that, that is that is just such a, a beautifully bizarre flipping of that trope of the, the precociously wise child in that parent <laughs> relationship.
1: Yeah, that's true, because... The, the only human children in the book are never saying anything wise they're usually just you know screaming from the toilet for their buns to be wiped mm. so maybe that's an indictment of uh, of humanity but um yeah that was a fun relationship to to write as well um between Eloise and her social robot um Ellie plus um, and and it's actually not as weird and sci-fi as um, that might sound but um is based on there's a very smart tech titan woman called uh, Martine Rothblatt and her wife, Bina, um, she's actually Martine's created a social robot of Bina. So you can actually go online and watch uh Bina's social robot being um, asked all sorts of questions and she often has these really bizarrely wise answers. And so even though you know it's, you know, a program thing, and um, it was built based on, uh, you know, thousands of hours of interviews with with the real-life Bina, um, trying to capture exactly how she would speak or think or answer anything. Um, And it's quite a... You can actually look up a transcription of, um, I think, just a journalist wanted to interview Bina, the social robot. So she's just got a head and shoulders. It's quite uncanny-looking to see her speak. But her answers to the questions are, I mean, it's like profound slightly absurdist poetry. Um, And so I was trying to capture a little bit of that in that relationship between Eloise and her social robot.
0: And I have to think you must have been more than a little tongue-in-cheek in in the scene where Ellie Plus is... Online, she has a Twitter account, and she is, of course, she is a bot tweeting. Um, where it's it's discovered that Ellie Plus has tweeted something, and has had a, an absolute troll pylon um, based on her comment. And I just thought, what a fun flipping of of the usual narrative around um, around Twitter and bots.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then there's this terrible moment where, you know, and this is where Eloise, Eloise has felt very ambivalent about mm. her social robot because she actually hasn't yet started to see her as a child that sees her as composition for her wife's attention. Mm. And then there's this moment where in that Twitter trolling, you know, someone says, I'm going to rape you so hard, you'll know you, I think you are, you'll know you are a bot or something like that. I can't remember the exact. Mm. expression. But uh, again, a turning on its head the idea of physical violence but um against a, you know, non humanoid form of intelligence. Um, and that's the moment where Eloise suddenly sparks into compassion and um and a sense of uh needing to protect this this social robot who has this weird form of intelligence that is so naive um about the ways that humans will treat her in the world.
0: And a really interesting there exploration of the dynamic of parenting because part of that realisation for Eloise is also that she has been holding so much back from Ellie Plus. You, you talked there about part of Ellie um, Plus's heuristics and, and artificial intelligence is hours and hours of interviews with Eloise and Eloise confesses to Ellie Plus that she hasn't told her everything, which is that's parenting that's so much of even as an adult an adult with adult parents we are constantly learning because you know it's not a it's not a, a an open book that you can just read the the personality of the other person from
1: absolutely and then there's the terrifying possibility and you know certainty that then one day your kids will write your own story for you mm. the story of you as parent And you will have no control over that. You know, It's something I often think about. If I think back to my, some of my ancestors and the stories that have been passed on through the generations about them. And I often wonder like, you know, how would they feel that of everything they were as a human being and all the life they lived, that it's this story that has, you know, stood the test of time. And it's often a a kind of shitty story about someone as a parent, like a, a cruelty or a, you know, um, and it's just that thing that survives of your memory of what kind of a parent you were. Um, and I guess at the end of the day, it's a great equalizer that our children will, in the end, control the narrative of what kind of parents we were, no matter what we want to tell ourselves about how we were as parents.
0: Yeah, I wonder about that dynamic too, because what you're, what you're really talking about there is the way our conception of how our behaviour will be received shapes how we actually form that behaviour. And, and that goes into, I guess, these ideas around leadership and guidance that figure into ideas of parenting. And, and as we've, we've commented a couple of times, always kind of lurking in the atmosphere of life after truth is this figure of Fred Reese, but also his father, who is president. And there's a point where Eloise ponders to herself about the need for more benevolently charismatic world leaders and it's sort of in that in that statement it sort of it kind of felt like that that word benevolent the idea that we need the the outward facing behavior to be something that we can enjoy but it, it, we need it to then actually kind of mirror our own morality in that benevolence and i wondered you know whether this whole idea of of charisma and personality in leaders was was maybe uh, failed or, or lacking to begin with you know, do we need yeah, do think, we need the good parent or do we just need the parent who'll do what needs to be done?
1: I don't know. That's a good question. Um I guess the danger of any yeah, that formation of a paternalistic um whether it's benevolent or malevolent mm. um notion of a of a leader is that, you know, it's it's lack like of the draw which one you get um and so the charisma can uh, can go in either way. But um yeah, I mean I th- I think it's uh, the sense that, um, you know, the the, the re- response, to, the antidote perhaps mm-hmm. to that negative dark energy that someone like a Trump, uh, you know, seems to draw and then generate, you know, that's very fascinating to me. Like what is it that people are being drawn to there? Um, and it's that, you know, we can't deny that that has a power and an attraction for a huge number of Americans um, and possibly, you know, people around the world. Um, and so perhaps in these times, the best antidote to that is, is keep the charisma and the magic and that, you know, power of attraction, but try and pick the leader who's benevolent, like, you know, just in New Zealand or um the way that Obama would had that same magnetic force, but it was the force for good. And perhaps that's the best, really, that we can do.
0: And I guess as in a parent, so in a leader, we don't want to just see someone whose entire uh, performance and self-conception turns on the idea that they will be liked. I mean, there's, there's the great scene again towards the end where I think it's Mariam is talking about how at train stations, these liminal zones... Diet, food, it's no holds barred. They're allowed to indulge. They've already gone through a box of donuts and had a big, big serve of fries. But that is the indulgence. You can't as a parent or as a leader to simply be, I'm going to do what will make you like me the most because donuts all day, every day, just is no good for a growing population. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: that's so true. And it's such a, actually, probably if I had to pick one thing that I've learned that's been most useful for, from parenting that I can then take with me into other aspects of my life. It's letting go of likability. And I think it's a particularly female, you know, um, problem because we are, we tend to be socialized to put likability above all else. And it doesn't mean that being likable doesn't help you get things done in the world. So it can be a very useful, you know, survival skill and 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 a smart strategy for, you know, building alliances and, actually doing good in the world but there comes a time where you also have to realize that um you know you cannot be doing things because you want to be likable and that's what parenting taught me like you know such a weird shift from when you have a baby to when you have a toddler when you have a baby all you have to do to be a great mother is give them exactly what they want when they want it um that's being a great mother and no one really warned you that actually then what's so hard about having a toddler is that to be a good parent you basically have to frustrate their needs 99% of the time (laughs) and you cannot care if they like you for it you know it's actually your job is to say no um to their tyrannical demands um and it was a transition I really you know struggled with because I just Couldn't. It was such a massive change in the in the mandate of what being a good mother was. I thought I had it down pat, you know, with the baby, and then suddenly I was like. uh, And I I guess that's useful for anybody to take into into life. And now I, I I just care less about whether I'm likable to people in other spheres of my life, and that feels actually like a relief.
0: Keridan, I could speculate endlessly and discuss all the depths of Life After Truth. You have been tremendously generous uh, with your time chatting today. I am speaking with Keridan Dovey. Her new novel is Life After Truth. It is it is terrific. We kind of got lost at the beginning there. We, we talked about how there is kind of a bit of a murder mystery there. and I mean, gosh, lovers of Ed, anything can get something out of Life After Truth. Thank you so much for chatting to me today.
1: Thank you, Andrew.
0: That's it for this Great Conversation with Keridan Dovey. Keridan's new novel is Life After Truth, and it's out now through Penguin. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Gundungurra and the Darug people, and it is broadcast from... uh the Eora, Eora It is broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. Uh, look, thank you everyone for joining me today. I am in a, a very idyllic location, but it might mean you have put up with a little bit of cicada song in the background. I am Andrew Popel. If you want to keep up with the latest in books, writing, and literary culture, follow us on the socials. It's at FinalDraft2SER. And uh, look, I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, Happy reading. Bye now.